0: Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We are going through this book of Romans and the the argument works something like this. Uh, We begin looking at our condition in sin. Guilty, universally, condemned before God, and under the power or the corruption of sin in our lives. But the rest of Romans from chapter 3 on is God's comprehensive answer to the guilt and power and corruption, and shame of sin. And we learn that the answer to the guilt of our sin is that God gives us a righteousness. A righteousness that we didn't earn, that we didn't achieve, that we didn't even cooperate with. It was one that was accomplished completely apart from the law. Completely apart from us. And so, if you are trusting in Christ, Paul says you stand before God completely and utterly righteous. That the wrath of God that was directed towards your sin is completely and utterly spent. And there is nothing left. And so, the, Paul anticipates what someone's going to say if they hear that. All right, if you're telling me that I'm really righteous before God without any kind of you know, part that I play in it at all, if it's all grace, why not just keep on sinning if grace will cover it? If the law isn't to be my ruler anymore, I'm not under law, but I'm under grace, why not just live however I feel like? Why not just go on sinning because I'm under grace? Well, he answers that question in Romans 6 and then in 7. And that's what we're studying. Why? Why is it impossible for someone who is united to Christ to simply go on living in sin. That's the question that we're going to try to answer some today. Let's pray before we read God's Word. Father in Heaven, we pray for Your blessing on Your Word. Uh, ultimately, we know that the exercise of reading Your Word, of studying it, of talking about it, of explaining it, of applying it, all of that can only bear fruit if Your Spirit accompanies that work and makes it take root in our hearts. We're utterly powerless to overcome our sin, and so we call on You, Holy Spirit, come and and use uh, these few minutes to strengthen, to nourish and feed and make healthy Your church, that You would comfort those who need comforting, that You would challenge those who need challenging, and that You would give faith to all and repentance to all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that He might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that when we serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. This is God's Word. It's completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. Uh, President Ulysses Grant was apparently, as I understand it, an animal lover, lots of pets. Everyone in his household had a pet of some sort. Almost everyone in his household had at least one horse. Some had two. Uh, my favorite was that his wife, Julia, had a horse named Reb, which I assume is short for Rebel. And that's just interesting to me. Um, but apparently, he had suffered some great deal of misfortune with the dogs he had while he was president. A number of them died. And his son, Jesse, uh, acquired a Newfoundland uh, a puppy, And, you know, there was a certain fear that what had happened in the past would happen again. And so, now, I'll just tell you this up front. When when pastors are looking for an illustration, we look far and wide for them. And some of them are probably true. And some of them may have a bit of a, a, a legend attached to them. And I don't know which this is, but it does illustrate my point. So, whether this is good history or just making the point, I don't know. But the story goes like this. Grant called the steward who was in charge of all the staff at the White House Inn. And he said, Jesse just got a new puppy, a Newfoundland. They named him Faithful. Yes, sir. I want you to know that when that dog dies, I'm firing everybody who works for the White House. And apparently, according to Margaret Truman, who wrote a book on White House pets, the Newfoundland named Faithful enjoyed superb health while in the White House and lived for many years to follow. Now, I don't know again if all that's true, but let's say it is. Let's say that the steward and his staff had not been very faithful in caring for the household pets, and that was part of the reason why there was a problem. And now, something changed. They went from, if I can say it this way, their unrighteous behavior toward the pets, to one that was much more righteous. They didn't care... They didn't work hard, and they didn't do much, and the pets suffered. They were given a new motivation, and they began to do a better job. Now, in the Bible, your motivation is just as important as what you accomplish. What was the motivation of the White House staff to keep faithful alive? It was their jobs. At the end of the day, they said, I want to keep my living, and I want to do this, and so when they served those pets, who were they really serving? themselves at the end of the day the motivation was self-interest it was a selfish motivation the threat of the heavy hand of the law motivated them to do good work now we've seen in the book of romans that the chief sin of man the most common sin that bonds us all together under condemnation, is that we were willing to exchange the glory of God for something created. That looks like this. In an immoral person, they exchange the glory of God for pleasure, or for uh, self-gain, for possessions and money. And, and they live an immoral lifestyle because they don't care about a greater standard. Only what will give me that which I want. And if it's expressed in immorality, fine. It serves this created God who becomes a functional Lord in life. But it works just the same in those who are moral and religious. A person who says, all I want is to earn my way That becomes the functioning principle Lord in my life. And I serve it by working hard and making myself say, you know what? I feel pretty good about myself. I'm moral. I'm religious. But who am I serving? Not God. And I have simply exchanged the glory of God for something created. Me. That's what happens in Grant's White House. They become righteous, at least on the surface, but they're still just serving themselves. And we find that when the law is over us, it can't help us. One of my favorite quotes, and I know many of you have heard me say it, and I'm going to say it lots of times, because I want you to to have it ringing in your ears. It was from John Bunyan. He said this, uh, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. sweeter sound the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings what I want you to see is that precisely what Paul is saying in Romans 7 in these verses that if you are under the law all that it can do is threaten and all that it can accomplish is to make you righteous enough to serve yourself that is all the law can accomplish you need a new motivation still, one that can rescue you not from immorality, but from yourself. And that's what Romans 7 offers you. I want you to see as a bit of a summary that he's answering the question. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is no. And he asked a similar question again in verse fifteen, chapter six, what then are we what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again he says no. And he gives you some reasons. In chapter in verse sixteen he says this Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. He says this if you decide I'm going to give myself to sin even though I'm under grace, even though I, I, I'm, grace will abound because I'm connected to Jesus, I'm going to give myself to sin, he says, don't you know that's slavery? You don't want to keep on sinning because it will enslave you. It will own you. It will take control of your life. Don't go on sinning because it's slavery. And you don't want to be a slave. Or, he says in verse 21, verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at the time, that is when you were under sin, from the things which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. He says you don't want to keep on sinning not only because it will enslave you, but because it will destroy you. Sin is destructive. And it will kill you. You think it was a significant threat for Grant to say you might lose your job. Paul says you keep on sinning, you're going to lose your life and your your soul. It's a pretty significant threat. And so he gives us some reasons to think, hey, I need to get out from under this sin. But if you only take those two out of their broader context, you might find that all you've gotten is more selfish motivation to try to stop sinning. Paul says in Romans 7, you are married. You are married if you are trusting in Jesus. You are married To Christ. But you weren't starting that way. You were born married to the law. And what I want you to see is that idea of being married and belonging to Christ is the motivation you need to begin to really live apart from sin and righteous lives. First, look at what it means to be married to the law verse 1, Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law? And the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This may sound pretty obvious. So he says, let me illustrate. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. This is how we end our weddings. Uh, I will be married to you as long as we both shall live. It's the vow that we make in, in weddings. And then the minister, and I will say this uh, every time, do not let man break apart or put asunder that which God has brought together. That the intention of marriage is very clearly a permanent relationship. And that to sever it means something went really, really wrong. And I'm not trying to get into all the details about marriage and divorce, but in the ordinary case, the idea is to stay married. And that when someone, for unbiblical reasons, gets married, or gets divorced rather, that if they decide to engage in another marriage without trying to repair the one that's possible to repair, that they're sinning against God. But when that first spouse dies, the vows have been fulfilled, the person is free to remarry. We assume that a a widow is free to remarry. You see, that's the image you want you to get in your head. is that you were born in an arranged marriage. You were born in an arranged marriage to the law of God. You were connected to it and underneath it, and the only hope that you had under that law was perfect, complete, obedience to the heart. That is, you couldn't simply fulfill the surface matters but you had to get at the very heart of what the law was and Jesus tells us what the law really is it's to love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that's the law and and, and so we're supposed to love him above everything else and the law comes and says you know what you know that time you got angry at your neighbor at your brother at your sister at your parent at your children You weren't loving your neighbor as yourself. And that person was made in the image of God. And by your anger, you were saying, you're not worth being made in the image of God. And you were rubbing out God. You were actually rebelling against Him. And so you didn't love God. And so your anger demonstrates you can't keep the law. You can't keep it in either of its facets. And we could do this with every one of the commandments. We expose... The letter of the law, as it says in verse six. We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we serve not under the old written code. The letter of the law, this written code that was written out for you and set on your heart, and it's the standard by which God would judge us, and you were married to it, connected to it, and obligated to it. That's the way you're born. It's the way God set up the world. But then something happens. You had this law over you. It didn't love you. And you know how this works. If I give you a bunch of rules, does it motivate you to do good work? Uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a preacher uh, of a century or so ago, uh, was told by his mother to go pick a quart of raspberries. He tells the story. and He went out to go pick it and he was grudging it. I don't want to be outside. It's hot. It's hot miserable, and he dragged himself out to the berry patch. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to surprise Mom. I'm going to pick two quarts and take them into her. And, and then it was as if it were magic. When he decided that he was no longer doing this because he had a command to do, he was going to pick those raspberries for his mom, whom he loved. It changed everything about his picking raspberries. He said the moments flew by. He picked them and enjoyed picking it so much that fifty years later he remembered that moment in his life as if it had happened the day before. What I want you to see is that the law can never motivate you that way. If God commands you, don't murder. He might go, all right. I don't want to murder. Murder's been angry at somebody. I don't want to be angry, but I keep getting angry, and I resent it, and it's a burden. God says, forgive your neighbor who sinned against you. Oh, God, I want to forgive them, but man, it hurts, and I don't like what they did. God says, be generous with your things. And so you write that check, and you're like, man, that's a lot of money. You're holding it over the plate going, I could really, there's some other cool stuff I could buy. And God's law feels to you like this burden you're carrying. That's all the law can accomplish. But if you were to transform the reason why you do the law into something else, something that can make you take joy in doing it for another person. And that's what happens. Here's the the spiritual reality. The Bible says that you are united to Christ in his death. Now, I don't know how to explain this in, in some kind of concrete terms. It's abstract and it's hard, but it says it's true. It's spiritually true. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with Him. And what that means is you're free from this law, this written code that says, do it or else. And you've become married to Christ. And you have, being married to Him, gotten all His resources, all His wealth of righteousness. It's all yours. The way a a, a person who's a poor spouse marries a rich one and becomes rich immediately. That's what's happened to you. You've become wealthy spiritually by being married to Christ. You died to the law, it says in verse 4, so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead. You no longer are married to the law and all of its demands, you're married to Jesus. And let me tell you what He demands. He demands that you trust Him to love you. He demands that you look on what His life accomplished. He demands you to think about His leaving heaven to love you. He demands you to think about how He lived His life in poverty because He wanted to rescue you from sin. He demands you think about how He took your sin from you and said, I don't want you to carry this anymore. You let me have it. And He carried it on His shoulders to the cross. It wasn't the beam that burdened Him as He walked to the cross. It was your sin and mine. He, want, he demands that you think about the nails that held Him to the cross knowing that He did it because He loved you and wanted to rescue you. He, he demands you think about His resurrection and how His resurrection is your life forever. Those are His demands. And then you say, look at all He has done for me. And as I think about that, you know what? That makes me want to do something for Him. It's not now that I go, God, you said don't murder. Alright, I won't murder. I actually go out and I say, God, You loved me. Is there a way for me to love this person? You see, I want to say, God, when i am got the law that says be generous, I hold that check in my hand and I say, I don't want to give this. It feels like a burden. But when I spend some time thinking about what Christ did for me and how He loved me and how He made me His spouse, an intimate, connected, loving relationship. Now I say, is this what I can do for you? This isn't enough. I-, I-, I want to write one a little bigger. I want to give up something else. You see, what happens is you've come to love a person. You see, rules are never, ever, ever going to be enough. Threats will never, ever make you righteous. Righteous. But if you fall in love with Jesus, it's enough to take all those laws and make you say, those are the things I want to do because I want to express what it looks like to love Jesus because He's loved me so well. You see, that's what this passage is telling you. He broke the power of the law over you so that now you're married to Him, you've got the relationship, your obedience won't make it better and it won't make it worse. Your sin can't sever it anymore. You're under grace, not the law. But how can you keep going in that sin if you know who you're married to? If you know how much He delights in you? If you know how much He loves you? If you've experienced that love and thought about it, how does sin, how does the law feel like a burden? How does sin keep its your attention? You see, here's the real issue. When you and I face temptation and we give into it, When we sin, you have forgotten who your spouse is. You've forgotten how much He loves you. You've forgotten that the extravagant, lavish blessings that Christ won for you, you've forgotten who you are. And so what Paul says is remember. Remember who you are. Remember what you have. There's a... Apparently, again, Preacher's searching far and wide for an illustration. There's a motivational speaker named Bill Grove. I have no idea who he is. He tells a story about a man named Harry who ran an appliance store in Arizona, Phoenix. And he said he was used to people coming into his appliance store, price shopping for, you know, like window unit air conditioners and things. And so somebody would come in and start asking some questions about features and models, and he seemed to know everything. He knew model numbers, he knew everything there was to know about the air conditioners. He could tell them the, the strengths and weaknesses of every brand and of the particular units, what they would do and what they needed. If they told him how big their house was, he could say, You need this one and here's why. He would do the math in his head. He he knew them backwards and forwards. And so they would go around the room and he would spend, you know, thirty minutes or more educating them on the air conditioners that he could sell. And inevitably, at the end, after getting all that they could hope for from Harry, they would say, Well, thank you very much. I, I, I see that, you know, kind of what our needs are, but I want to do a little price shopping. And after all he'd spent on them, they would be prepared to walk out. And here's what he would say I know that you're looking for the best bill you can find. I understand that because I do the same thing myself. I know you'll probably go down to Discount Dan to compare prices. I know I would. But after you've done that, I want you to think of one thing. When you buy from Discount Dan's, you get an appliance, and a good one. I know, because he sells the same appliance as we do. But when you buy here, you get one thing you don't get at Dan's. You get me. I come here, I come with the deal. I stand behind what I sell. I want you to be happy with what you buy. I've been here 30 years. I've learned the business from my dad, and I hope to be able to give the business over to my daughter and son-in-law in a few years. So you know one thing for sure. When you buy an appliance from me, you get me with the deal. That means I'll do everything I can to be sure you never get doing business with me. That's a guarantee. Then Harry would wish the couple well and give them a quart of ice cream as they walked out into the 110 degree Phoenix heat. Bill Grove finishes the story. How far do you think that couple's going when they have Harry's speech ringing in their ears and a quart of ice cream in their hands and it's 110 degrees? No, they don't go far. Here's what I'm saying to you. Christ says, you get me. How far are you going to go? How far are you going to wander away from that? Christ says, you get me. That's the relationship you have. And it's the only thing that can make you willing to turn away from sin and to live righteous. And that is why when we ask the question, should we just keep on sinning? We go, I can't do that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us see what we have in Christ Jesus. That we could embrace His love. That we could take the demands of our loving husband to whom we now belong and it would make us say to sin, "Oh, that's not. that's no good anymore. Because we get Christ in this deal. And He is good. I pray that You would help us see it and embrace it and live in the knowledge that we have Jesus and so we can't go on sinning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.